DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn, you're the boss. Disability Disability done done different, candid conversations. Hope you're ready because we're starting. Welcome to Candid Conversations, Disability Done Different. I always get it wrong. But you got it. Oh, no, you got it wrong that time too, yeah? (laughs) Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations. And welcome, Evie. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks, Dad, for welcoming me to my own podcast. And welcome, Charmaine Fraser. It's good to be here. Charmaine, you're a Director of Aurora Support Coordination, but the question I really wanted to ask you is, why did you give up ballroom dancing? <laughs> well, I, I, yes, my first career was as a competition ballroom dancer and it was a bit of a blur of feathers and fake tan and diamantes and I don't even know why I stopped in my 20s, but I actually returned to it. After a 30-year oh, yeah? break, I went back to dancing just to fill in my spare time and burn off some energy. And then coronavirus struck and all of the classes have closed down. So my brief return has been thwarted. So You'll come back. Tell me that they find a way to do ballroom dancing over Zoom. There we go. <laughs> so we'll manage to dig up an old tape of you in the grand final of the, we won't date the year that, that it was in, but the hairstyle certainly date That's that. That's dance in Australia. That's dancing in Australia. In the grand final, how did you go? Uh, well, we were sixth in the grand final, but that was quite an achievement to even reach uh, that level. So we were among some very, very high-ranking um, people. So, yeah. And is that one of your career highlights? We're going to move on to disability in a moment. But when you look back and think about all the things you do, you and have done, is that is that one of the moments that sticks out for you? Well, I think most people would have moments in their life where they think, was that me? Was I even that person? I, I don't know. I can't even remember being that person. So it's good that there's some kind of tape somewhere recording it, that I was that young and that tanned and that fit, I guess. Um, so, yeah. I'm not much of a sports lover myself, but I, I do find myself sometimes quoting football coaches. One of my favourite quotes, quotes is from Kevin Sheedy who said, Basically, if a player does something wrong, you pull him off the field and then you don't dress him down. You don't tell him what he did wrong because he already knows. Are there lessons from ballroom dancing that you're pulling through to support coordination that we should know about? I do. I do have a lesson. And I think, I mean, it's a long time ago, but what I was taught to do as a female dancer, as the person who follows, is that when you take up hold, you bring with you know, all of your knowledge and your skills but you have to keep your mind quite blank and respond in that moment to what the person leading is is telling you to do. So if there's a possible kind of correlation with support coordination, it's that you have to, when you meet with a participant, bring all of your skills and knowledge of the NDIS and what they could do, but you have to keep your mind blank and follow their lead because they're the ones in charge. So there you go. That's my boring dancing tip as it relates to support coordination. I love it. I love that image. You know, we hear so many sort of metaphors about like sitting with someone and walking alongside, but I love that image of like in your dance of life, you know, I'll follow your lead. (laughs) It's really romantic Mm -hmm. in a way. But it's also being open to what the person is bringing to the table and, and 
so much of the challenge here you do a lot of support coordination training i know it's a large part of your life as a director of a, a support coordination business but the charmaine charmaine yeah but being open to to follow the person who who's in front of you instead of in my experience prior with case managers they would often feel insecure they wouldn't know what they needed to do with the person in front of them and in the face of insecurity they'd start offering solutions as opposed to listening and is that something that is is important in your role Charmaine I suppose you're saying it is well it never works it, you might feel better that you fill the space in a meeting by coming up with all of the answers but you've got to wait because the participant will tell you what they want you to do and sometimes you've got to sit with the discomfort of that that space. Look, I, I do think there's a, um, you know, there's a process of starting a brainstorming in, in the NDIS space because a lot of participants, they don't know what to ask for because it's so obscure and they might have gone through an experience in early planning where they've made a suggestion for support that they might have thought would help and then they've been told by a, a planner and LAC, no, not that, not that, not that. So they almost become kind of closed and withdrawn from the process. So sometimes you can start a brainstorming, just kind of invite an idea, but you've got to wait for the participant to pick that up. And then as soon as they tell you what they want or what they need, well, then you run with that. One of the things I've heard about you, Charmaine, is you, you're a good listener. You like to hear a person's story. You're willing to sit through and some people's stories are quite extensive and they need to be told before they can talk about anything that they want to do. Is that true? Yeah, I've said I've got a face that says, tell me your life story, start at the beginning and don't leave anything out. <laughs> you really say that? Yeah, I do. And that's my claim to fame. Everywhere I go, people tell me their life story. And I love it. And to be honest... I can't make sense of random pieces of information. I can't even make sense of somebody's NDIS plan until I can integrate it with their story. And their story does begin way before the date of this plan. Maybe even way before if they're a person who's had an acquired disability, you know, way before that. So yeah, every plan comes in the context of someone's life. And if you're a good listener, then people will unfold their story and sometimes at different speeds and sometimes over many, many weeks and months and even years. But then when you put those pieces together, you can do some really effective support coordination. So Charmaine is the director of Aurora Support Coordination. You, you've worked so much with parents of kids with disabilities in your life. You're a parent of a child, an adult, a younger adult with disabilities. Is he a younger adult? 17, nearly 18. Yep, they qualify as younger adults. My experience years and years ago when I started to work with parents of kids with disability, for some reason over a summer before I started that job, I read all the different Lebanese hostages books and I've, I've got a, <laughs> I'm half Lebanese. And the, the Lebanese hostages were held for three, four years with very, very little social contact. And there was four or five books that came out of that experience. And when I read those books, what I realised is that every one of those hostages coped with a, what was seemed to be an unbearable situation, 
but they coped in an entirely different way. Each one of them, the Irish guy went into his head and went a little bit crazy and came back out again. The English guy big noted himself. The English guy, the other English guy just thought about his girlfriend the whole time who he broke up with as soon as he got out, of course, four years later. But everybody copes in their own unique ways with quite difficult situations. It struck me working and then going to work with parents of kids with disabilities that almost everybody copes. But how? Can you help me? Well, first of all, what's the alternative? Parenting in general is getting up every morning and, and making it work. Look, I think when you have a child with a disability, there's a couple of concurrent stories, isn't there? There's the child story and their life is fine. They don't know that there's something wrong often. They're certainly an early intervention. They're kind of oblivious to that. So often in the early stages, it's the parents who, who are experiencing some, some, let's call it grief, um, of perhaps the situation that they're facing. And in some ways, being a parent walking that path, you've got a unique empathy for, for that parent. So you, you can walk with them and, and share that. Um, certainly when you're a parent who's a little further ahead, and that's what I found when I worked in early intervention, that I was a parent who'd made it through that. So you've got a unique insight into bringing a parent along and saying it's going to be okay, I promise it's going to be okay. Um, So, yeah, I don't know, did I answer the question? can't remember. What was the question? The question was how do people cope? You you answered a better question, which I didn't ask, but I think you did answer it. You answered it at the beginning. You don't have a choice not to cope. Thanks, Charmaine. Can we take you back to your your days at Lizard, which is the Early Childhood Autism Specialist Service? And you and Nick Rogerson uh, were responsible for building uh, the success of that that organisation over a significant period of time. We've talked to Nick about where the success came from, but when you look back, where do you reckon the success came from, Charmaine? Uh, Well, first of all, I was... Uh, I, I worked at Lizard, but before that, my son attended Lizard as an as early intervention. So I've got a dual perspective on perhaps where the success of Lizard came from. Yeah. And I would say, first off, there was an amazing team of clinicians who designed early intervention programs that really worked. I can honestly say that the reason why my son has receptive and expressive language and is toilet trained and has a multitude of other functional skills is because he was able to receive individualised intervention that was evidence-based and data-driven. But perhaps behind the scenes um, were some other great team members managing everything from that very first phone call that we would receive from a parent who might have just left a paediatrician's office with a new diagnosis. We had people um, scheduling, billing, managing human resources. There was a lot of magic behind the scenes that perhaps people might not have seen. But really, to be honest, at Lizard, the secret was, um, you know, those up front, the executive team. So that was Nicole, myself, and another amazing woman called Wendy. And we all had lived experience of having a child with a disability. Uh, We had understanding and insight into the parent's perspective and and how they felt, you know, longing for perhaps the best possible future and, and being prepared to do anything to make that happen. And parents connecting with parents 
you know, there were many tissues passed as tears were shared and, and many hugs and um, celebrations as milestones were reached. And, you know, I think the thing about Lizard is that um, we had skin in the game and that really showed. Yeah, I know one of your biggest roles there was um, training Charmaine. Earlier you spoke about ballroom dancing and the lessons you learned from that in that we need to follow the person or listen to the person we're working with. We know it doesn't work when we want to lead or rescue the people we're working with. And my experience of a number of early childhood intervention practitioners is they, they're rescuers. Can you train people away from being rescuers to the sort of approach that you're advocating? Is that something you can train for or is it something that you just can't deal with? Well, I think we ran a very successful training arm at Lizard and I think that you can train people for the skills to do their job, the practical skills. I guess the question you're asking is can you change somebody's attitude? Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's harder. You know, I would say with the right training you can train any good quality candidate but that's really your first job. Choose the candidate who's willing to learn and then what you layer on top in terms of building skills and knowledge um, and how you build those. Some people are just born better for this role and uh, uh, different roles, but, you know, the role I'm thinking of that we trained for at Lizard, which was particularly this kind of type of a therapy assistant role, um, you know, after meeting more than 3,000 of them over the years, I can tell you that some came with the necessary attitudes um, and then we layered training and skills and coaching at the point of performance you know there was really quite an integrated training program and then continued ongoing supervision I think people often have an idea that you could just attend a training session and then magic would occur but that's only step one I think after that you need to apply any skills that you've learned so yeah, I was just thinking when you were talking about attitude and training, um, I'm not sure I entirely agree. And I say that as someone who thinks that I've got a good attitude and still couldn't be trained. I think there's something in that ability to just put aside your, you know, role and you're calling it rescuing. When I want to tell people how to solve their problems, it doesn't feel like rescuing. It just feels like I don't really want to hear them talk about their problem anymore. And I think I know where they should go. You know, I think that there's there is something really, really special about those people who are able to be so, you know, to put their ego aside, to listen, to be led by somebody and to to really do that authentically. I think it's more 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 than attitude, more than training. I think it's it's something really special that I like clearly. But it's such a. um it's such a pleasure to meet those people. And I'm so glad people like you are around. So, Charmaine, are you taking this approach into support coordination? Is it the sort of work, do you, do you need to do this level of training with the support coordinators you work with? Absolutely. Uh, you know, support coordination is a new role. So the chance of plucking somebody off the street um, to be a support coordinator is statistically unlikely. Um, so we really do have to take somebody through quite a journey of different pieces of knowledge, skills and knowledge to become a support coordinator. You need a base understanding of the NDIS, and that's two, well, two things, which is the legislation, and then perhaps the NDIA, which is the organisation enacting that. Um, and then you need to understand and empathise with participants. I mean, there's some key pieces that, that fall into that 
it's two points. There's that very, very steep upskilling to, to taking on a role of support coordination, but it's also an ongoing process of keeping your knowledge sharp and up to date and keeping across and knowing and understanding your participants and their needs. It's a really challenging role and it's not for the faint-hearted, but for those of us who um, love that kind of challenge, it's a perfect role. Charmaine, I want to ask your advice on something. Uh, I do a lot of support coordination training and I'm really hoping I'm going to convince you to do some of DSC support coordination training in future. And there's something that I've been struggling with lately, which is that I would love to be role modeling to the support coordinators that I'm training, how they should be working with individuals that I say to them at the beginning, you know, I'm trying to build your capacity to build capacity. And then I proceed to, you know, give them a stack of information over two days where at the end kind of you could see that they're their eyes are boggling around a little bit. There's so much there. And I'm, I'm trying to role model to them how to give information, build capacity to support people to understand a really complex system. And I, and I, and I don't feel like I'm doing it. And part of it is it's just so freaking complicated. I'm so frustrated today. Actually, now I've got into a rant. I've just come to this podcast from guest presenting in a workshop about the price guide. And I spent half an hour trying to explain how core supports are flexible. So core supports are flexible across four buckets, except if you're a self-manager at the moment. Oh, and except if you've got your transport as a periodic payment. But if you And it's just like the level of except, except, except is just you know, I'm a trainer and I'm having to spend half an hour trying to find a way to explain to people how core supports are flexible. I've lost my question here. It's just gone into a full-blown sure rant. Got an <laughs> how on earth do, does, do we make this simple? I don't know if there's a question in there, Charmaine. I guess it's just I'm really frustrated that this is so freaking complicated. Um, sometimes I think of the price guide lately. Uh, this is a bit of a nerdy reference, but um, the Weasley's house from Harry Potter, if anybody remembers, it's this house that's had an extension and an extension and an extension. Well, you called it Frankenstein when you came in. Well, it's just this unwieldy thing that how is anybody supposed to understand? I'm, I'm feeling the incongruence between telling them, you know, give people the information they need, break it down, make it simple, while what I'm doing is giving a PowerPoint presentation with, you know, asterisks the whole way through about the exceptions to the rules I'm trying to train. <sighs> Help, Charmaine? <laughs> Questions, comments, feelings? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is, you know, acknowledge that it's frustrating and, and empathise with you. It is hard. And our job as trainers is to make complex topics simple and communicate those. So make no mistake, there are hours of work in unpacking complex topics and distilling them down to simple dot points. And DSC actually do a really good job of that. I find with training, we're really looking to build capacity and not build reliance. So with my team, when they come to me with a question about the NDIS and it's complex, I could solve that the short way and say, the answer is yes, or the answer is no, or the answer is this item code or that ruling. The longer way is to say, this is where we find the answer. Let's look at the price guide next to the support catalogue. Okay, the index says transport's described on page 27. Let's scroll through to that. Let's read it together. Okay, let's highlight that sentence that explains that there's flexibility. And if I can do that, then learning has occurred. So it's never as simple as 
that you just spoke to it. It's always going to be relying on them, that particular case that they're looking at and then being able to refer back to resources and, and ideally direct sources from the NDIS um, to answer that question. And then that builds capacity in that person to answer their own questions. So I'm hearing a three-part job description for a support coordinator. So the first part is that they build capacity and don't rescue the next part is that they're willing to deal with the complex and attempt to make it as simple as possible. And the third part is this inquiring mind that they're willing to continuously learn. And we know from our business in consulting that those people are incredibly difficult to find, Charmaine. Have I got the job description right? And are they as hard to find for you as they are for us? I love your job description. I might use it the next time we recruit. I agree. Looking for a support coordinator that's going to last is like looking for a needle in a haystack. Yeah. But you only have to find one. And from that, you know, if you can, if you can identify that that person has the right attitude, then accept that you'll have to build the skills and knowledge related to support coordination on top of that. And then give them work conditions that make it possible to do their job. Um, so yeah, it's a needle in a haystack, but you just need to find, in my case, we're a small business, so you just have to find them one at a time, invest heavily in training, be prepared to provide lots of supervision, and perhaps model, you know, model best practice. Um, and, then, and then lots of collaboration, and then you've got a fully baked support coordinator. That's cool. I, I, one thing you and Evie have very strongly in common is you both have a thirst for understanding the nuances of the NDIS, the complexity of the NDIS, the detail that is the NDIS. You can both answer this question. Why? Why, do, why have you wanted to get on top of that detail? It's proved to be a great career move for you, Evie, and I suspect for you too, Charmaine, in the career you want to do. But what drove that willingness to learn in both of you? Well, maybe let Charmaine answer that one first. I'll take it first. In my case, it's deeply personal. You know, when I talk about Jack's amazing early intervention opportunity, that came at a huge cost. It was, you know, financially we moved cities to pursue it. Um, you know, we made choices to prioritise his intervention in our family. So even just the hint of the NDIS coming was music to my ears. I was curious um, what it would mean. And, and, and then, um, you know, I'd worked in early intervention for a long time, so I did a real career pivot in um, picking up support coordination. And I'm not afraid to say there was, there was a selfishness in learning about the NDIS because my son's a participant and the rest of his life will depend on probably my ability and then perhaps my, my daughter, if she picks up looking after him when I'm not here, is my ability to understand what the NDIS is all about and what it can offer him and our family. So my thirst for knowledge started off just purely in self-interest. But then when you take on other support coordination participants, no, it's like a treasure hunt that you just keep digging and finding and it's enormously rewarding because when you work out that you can 
solve a problem using NDIS funding or you understand a pathway to help somebody reach their goals and aspirations. It's a huge payoff. You think, wow, I, so I cracked it. Um, so it's kind of self-reinforcing that process of learning and understanding. So it's kind of gone from being a very perhaps selfish and personal pursuit to understand the NDIS to maybe a broader um, understanding of this very, very exciting change to the way that disability is funded in Australia. Mm. I'm going to come back and ask you some more about that, but your reason, Evie? Yeah, at DSC, we joke that I speak. I um, I like to sleep with a price guide under my pillow, and the relationship is strained lately. I would say it's sleeping on the couch these days. But my reasoning for sorry, dad joke, but my reasoning for for wanting to get into the detail is, um, you know, I mentioned before, I'm not the kind of person who can sit and be with somebody and guide them through it. I want to be a part of the NDIS change, and I know that I can't be that part of it as much as I would love to. But what I see that I have that a lot of people in the sector don't have is a love of spreadsheets and a love of that kind of detail. And so I guess when I started to learn to read the price guide, it really made sense to me. You know, that information processes through my brain very smoothly. And I saw that I was able to um, share it with people who, who weren't able to read it in the same way I was. And that was awesome. So kind of similar to your saying, Charmaine, the people who really needed that detail to get the outcomes, I found that I was able to you know, get the detail and pass it on and then let them do what they do best. And that's where it came from for me. So Charmaine, I wanted to work back to what you were saying about inherent in what you were saying are concerns a lot of people have got about the NDIS, about it rebreeding the inequities that we faced before the NDIS, that people who are not articulate, people who are not connected, people who don't understand the system, people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, the, the list is, is really, really long are not going to get as good an outcome out of the NDIS. They're not going to get as good a plan. And it certainly is our experience that the well-versed, well-heeled, well-educated do do better in their plans in general. A, is that true? And B, do you think support coordination can play that role in addressing some of those inequities? It can and it does. And uh, speaking from personal experience, I see it every day. I see participants with, you know, an intact family, with a, a mum and a dad um, preparing well for entering the scheme or plan review, getting really good funding. And I see participants who have some sort of disadvantage. It could be that there's a single mother or, as you said, cultural and linguistic diversity, you know, all sorts of reasons why they might get a substandard planning outcome. Now, can support coordinators provide advocacy? Absolutely not. We have to know where that ends and where advocates pick up. But if it's in the context of you know planning meetings not being run in accordance with um, you know how they should be, well then yes, I think support coordination can help there. I think if a participant is not happy with the outcome of a decision, you know helping a participant to understand that they can ask for a review of a reviewable decision and that perhaps that decision can be reviewed. You know, having a thorough understanding of NDIS processes can help some of those participants who don't have the natural advantage of others to, to get a better outcome from their NDIS experience. So now I'm going to ask you a question that it's a little bit left, left of centre, but 
I, I've previously been involved in trustee arrangements, the um, state trustees in one particular state, and I was on the board of it. And if you Google ombudsman and trustees in almost every state, you'll find a litany of ombudsman's reports saying how unhappy people are with trustee arrangements in their state. They're, they've been inherited from two, three hundred years ago. And just I wonder with your um, financial savvy, your financial background, whether you've got an opinion on whether we could be doing better in that space, uh, you know, financial support, financial advice, financial expertise, and supporting parents to address the issues of what will happen to my child when I die? Well, that is, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? And, and one that- A several billion dollar back. question, I think, but yep. Yeah, I mean, that sits in the back of every parent's mind. I often feel like I've got to live two lives at once, the one where I work to fund my own life and the one where I work double time to fund a life for my son so that he's he's not left stranded when I'm not here. It's it's difficult. I wish I if I had the magic answer, I think I would stop being a support coordinator and move to that. Look, I think every family is is well advised to start planning well in advance. Interestingly, when I started working with adults um, with disabilities, so I came from early intervention and then I seemed to jump over the school aged and, and start working with adults, I was quite immediately struck by families, parents in their 80s with an adult child with disability in their 50s and no succession plan, no plan for the future. And that filled me with fear. And so I would go home to my husband and say, we have to. We have to buy somewhere. We have to buy somewhere. We have to have a plan. You're <laughs> like, okay, my son's only fifteen. Calm down. But I, I really became quite, um, you know, quite focused on that. So as a family, we've already set up some some different structures to plan for the future, and I worry about families that don't because uh, you know to think that. It, that somebody else will just pick that up and, and put your loved one's best interests at the centre. I'm, I'm not sure that that would happen. So can, can I try a pitch on you, Charmaine? Because this is an idea we've been working on for about a year and a half. It feels like it's got legs, but it's taking a while to actually get some forward momentum. But the idea is that um, we use DSC's brand and our 60,000 contacts to start developing a series of workshops with um, families of kids with disabilities about uh, financial planning how do we and from the very basic stuff to getting the best out of the disability support pension and all the other available schemes available to them including the ndis and wills and estate planning which every family wants to know about and gradually build a movement of those families towards eventually setting up a national trustee organization and, and handling this completely differently with the evie building a hooli dooly website along the way so that people can get access to the sort of information we're talking about in the support coordination uh, when we we're talking about that earlier do you think we could build a movement and build something that's contemporary and and can really meet a need wow i mean i there would definitely be demand now, when I think back, it'd be 10 years ago now, at Lizard Centre, I remember Nicole bringing in a, a speaker and he was a lawyer from a top firm who spoke about things like testamentary trusts and disability trusts and things like that. And, and will and estate planning. I still got the handout. 
um, it was Jonathan Harris. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because we all, so it was a, a lecture theatre full of parents with young children with disability and we all just sat there kind of ashen-faced and it kind of struck us just the enormity of planning for the future. And one of the parents said to me, they drove home the whole way going, don't crash, don't crash, don't crash, driving home, thinking, oh, until I get this sorted, I must protect my life. Um, so I would say to you that there's an enormous untapped market for expertise. And yes, you'll come and work with us. <laughs> <laughs> That's my last question, Evie. Do you have another one? Yeah, maybe just one to finish up. Charmaine, are you an NDIS true believer? I absolutely am. I mean, first of all, what a concept for our country that, you know, our most vulnerable, those people who are either born with a disability or who acquire a disability, will get provided with reasonable and necessary supports to live an ordinary life. I mean, that's, who, who wouldn't believe in that as a quest? But maybe the reason why I truly believe is that I live the NDIS. My son's a participant and with his NDIS supports, um, you know, I can really plan for a fulfilling future for him. Um, and I think I can say, because I do not just stand by as an idle critic of the scheme. I spend all day, every day, navigating and shaping the scheme um, working with participants so that the scheme can be everything that it promised. One thing we keep hearing about you, Charmaine, is you're not a critic, you're a, you're a shaper. You'd much rather get in there and make it the way you want to be rather than criticise it, which is fantastic. Mm. And, and I just want to add too, Charmaine, you sent us some background information about yourself and about uh, your experience with early intervention when your son was young. And you just mentioned that at that time, you know, there wasn't a lot of early intervention funded for families. And so it was the kind of thing that people self-funded. And that I've just been thinking about that for the last couple hours since I read it. You know, there's so far still to go, but how far we've come to think that, you know, not that long ago, 10, 15 years ago, families like your own had to fund in, in Queensland, five years ago, if you're a long part of Queensland, you got nothing. Yeah, exactly. And just to think about the equity that the NDIS, you know, still has a long way to go, but to think about the equity that that could have created, that's that's really impressive. I think it's worth noting that. Thank you so much for being our guest today. That's, it's been wonderful. And um, today, it's, it's been a really wonderful session. Thanks, Charmaine. My pleasure. You've been listening to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations, a podcast by DSC that's produced by MTS Productions. If you like our podcast, good news, you can subscribe. Head to teamdsc.com.au slash podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts.